Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Stephanie Flanders, uh, Senior Executive Editor at Bloomberg and Head of Bloomberg Economics. I'm very glad to welcome you all to today's RSA online event. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation uh, about this event, uh, I will give you the obligatory hashtag uh, to talk about it on Twitter. It's hashtag RSA individualism, um, or you can also chat about it on the uh, on the RSA YouTube uh, chat. Now, I'm, I'm really delighted to have a chance to talk, at least remotely today, uh, to support Collier and John Kay. Um, let me introduce them briefly, or anyone who's paid any attention to economics over the last few years will probably find them um, pretty well known. Uh, Paul Collier is Professor of Economics and Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government and a Professorial Fellow of St Anthony's College at Oxford. Um, he has a, made his name as a development economist and was the director of the research development department um, at the World Bank, but he's also become uh, better known perhaps for some very wide-ranging uh, books with very um, humble titles like The Future of Capitalism, uh, which came out a few years ago. Uh, John Kay is a fellow of St John's College, Oxford, and was the founding head of the Oxford uh, Said Business School and the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Um, he has uh, distinguished himself over the years as a columnist for the Financial Times, and the author of many, many books, not just the set text that many of us might have been given in covering the UK tax system, but thoughtful books about understanding the investment industry, which he also presided on a, a, a special report on for the government. Um, and most recently, I think the first event that I had to cancel in live because of COVID was actually uh, Lord for his last book, which was not so long ago uh, with uh, Lord Mervyn King. Um, this book that the two of them have written together, I'm fascinated to talk about, Greed is Dead, Politics After Individualism, it's called. Um, you're, we're going to hear all about it. I think it would put, I would say it puts a, a more philosophical lens on some of the critiques of neoliberal economics and the way our world has gone over the last few years. But it also talks in a very thoughtful way about the way our communal capacities have been whittled away over the past few decades, not just about the role of the state, but a deeper sense of collectivity. But I'll let you tell them all about it and we'll maybe also talk about what it means um, for the future. So uh, Paul and John, thank you very much uh, for talking to me. John, let me start with you just to get more of a sense of uh, what this book's about and perhaps how, why you decided to write it. Yeah, this book originated, Stephanie, in a lunch we had in um, a res Thai restaurant in Oxford called The Giggling Squid for some incomprehensible reason. And I was, um, as I've just recently finished the book you describe on radical uncertainty, while Paul, as you've also mentioned, had written The Future of Capitalism. And we were talking, and I read, I was aware that what I wanted to do next was to write a, a book about something about business, emphasizing that the, the presentation of business essentially as a group of individuals who happen to find it convenient to get together every day and work together 
fail to recognize that successful businesses, particularly the knowledge businesses we have in the 21st century, are made up of essentially communities of people who are able to solve problems together. That seemed to me a much more powerful way of thinking about business than the reductionist approach, which has dominated economics for the last 50 years. And Paul was interested in many of the same issues, but from the rather different angle of communities of place. So, um, what is a community of place? Um, we're hardwired for community. Um, um, Stephanie, you said we were drawing a lot on philosophy in the book, but we're also drawing a lot on um, modern evolutionary biology. And the news from modern evolutionary biology is really very good for people who believe in communities, both communities of work and communities of place. We're very distinctive mammals. We're designed, we're hardwired to bond to each other and for mutuality, for reciprocity, um, for pro-sociality. Um, and so um, in that bonding process, we actually want the good opinion of other people in our community. And that quest for the good opinion of others is the discipline that leads us to fulfill obligations to the, to the whole rather than just our individual selfishness. And so the big bad idea that we aim to demolish um, in modern economics is that notion that greed is good, which came out of the idea that humans were basically economic man, were greedy and selfish, and greed was therefore the fuel which got people up in the morning um, and fueled capitalism. If that was the fuel, greed was good. Well, it isn't. It isn't the fuel of capitalism. The fuel of capitalism is our ability to work together around a common purpose and to imagine and create. Um, so we're, we're very well designed both for communities of purpose, whether they are communities of work or communities of place, and we're very well designed for radical uncertainty because if you're, if you're in a world of radical uncertainty, you need to work out what to do and we're hardwired for creativity. We're very imaginative. And so the fuel of capitalism is not greed. It's that collective common purpose and imagination and creativity. And when we say greed is dead, the normal response is to say, but look around you, the world is is absolutely saturated in greed. That's, saturated in greed is actually the first, the opening sentence of greed is dead. What we mean by greed is dead is intellectually, the pillars that built the notion greed is good are now untenable. And so that's why we're saying greed is dead. We are now at peak greed because gradually these ideas will filter through. So let me turn just to pick up on uh, John's cue of communities of place. Um, we need communities of place <coughs> because so much of our public policy and our lives 
are lived in place. Our politics is very heavily dependent on place. And what's happened um, recently is, um, is big spatial divides. You've seen it in Brexit, which was basically a mutiny of provincial Britain against London. We've seen it with Trump, which was basically a mutiny of provincial America uh, against the metropolis. And so rehealing that, that's what's really uh, needed in the in community of place, restoring community of place. Let me pass back to John, because we've got lots of ideas about how to do it. You know, we're learning a lot about uh, this interaction of communities and place and work in the current, in the current crisis. We, um, the three of us, are able easily to this productive conversation together over Zoom. We're able to do that because actually we've met each other in real life quite frequently in the past. And quite a lot of businesses are discovering to their surprise that they can conduct business reasonably well um, over Zoom and other online aids like that. Would they be able to do that if people hadn't been able to meet each other, work together, talk to each other, form relationships with, other, with each other in the past? I doubt that. The community of place which happens in the office can be conducted online because it is a community of people who are used to working together. Now, communities of place and communities of work are very much bound up with each other. In the book, we take examples of some of the so-called red wall seats that have mutinied, as Paul described it, against their traditional Labour Party associations. Two examples we take are Stoke and uh, Don Valley around Doncaster. Don Valley is a former mining area where strong sense of community existed in all kinds of mining communities. People today in neither Don Valley nor Stoke are poor, nor are unemployed, nor are un is unemployment particularly high in either of these areas. New industries have replaced uh, the traditional mining of Don Valley, the traditional ceramic industry of Stoke. They're actually the largest, um, uh, Don, Doncaster is now a center for no less than four Amazon warehouses or fulfillment centers as they, uh, as they call them, because it's at the center of the most, it's central to the UK motorway network and you can distribute products easily from there. The largest employer in Stoke today, bizarrely, is Bet365, the, the online gambling um, uh, capability. These are perfectly good in the sense of well-paying jobs. Unemployment, as I say, in, in these areas is low, but they're not associated with the strong community bonds that existed in these constituencies in the past. And that is really what we have, uh, what we have lost as the nature of of business has changed. I'm interested, there's a lot to, to unpick. Um, I certainly came across the, the report I did for the RSA actually on inclusive growth, uh, which was working with lots of cities, obviously touched on 
uh, a lot of these issues and the, the sort of fraught debate that cities and towns have over whether they want the Amazon uh, centre because they know it could come with psychological problems and long-term social issues for their area but by and large they still end up competing very vigorously for them because they produce jobs so it, it, the world presents these places with very difficult choices but you talk about uh, a sort of self-expression whose quality is quote judged by intensity of passion rather than depth of knowledge i wonder how i mean we sort of we would all recognize that as a sense of what what this what social media has done to a lot of our political discourse and the so-called hatred of experts but where does that fit into the kind of development that you've seen uh, that you describe in this book i think it fits in because there are two different forms of individualism. Um, there's the economic um, uh, personal achievement, greed. That, that comes from basically from the, the right. And then from, more from the left comes this um, performative uh, and emotive individualism. Um, you know, the, the, the notion that the, that the benchmark, the gold standard of goodness has become the um, emoting teenager who feels with intense passion something about which they know nothing. Um, uh, um, I, was, I was at uh, Davos in January and it was, it was a perfectly comic um, union of uh, greed is good because there was Donald Trump um, and um, uh, emotive, performative, passionate ignorance, uh, there was Greta. Um, and so um, it, was, it was extraordinary that a 16-year-old that a teenager and a, um, a buffoon billionaire um, were the two principal addresses uh, in Davos, as if uh, an informed business audience should sit there and uh, take in the wisdom of these two idiots. Um, so that's the, 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 the emotive and performative stuff um, is, is a different strand, but it still points to it's all about me, which is the hallmark of individualism. One thing I would ask, I mean, one thing I was struck by reading the book is you talk about how um, you want people, you know, we obviously need people to feel a sense of uh, conviction and urgency in order to come together to achieve the kind of collective solutions that you talk about, a more constructive politics, if you like. Um, but you'd rather people got excited about things that were somehow non-political so we could all come together you talk about the british bake-off and other ways of getting people to bring together come together and i could totally see that but i just wondered how do you everyone loving the british bake-off is not going to actually help change policy in directions that you're talking about so i just wondered how do you resolve that no I, 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 we, obviously we need um uh, informed discussion about public policies and that's political, of course, but we want a pragmatic approach that seeks to find solutions through dialogue rather than an ideological approach 
which seeks to triumph for a received dogma. Um, and so the nature of dialogue, we're doing dialogue now, it's backwards and forwards. It's a presumption of uh, a generous presumption on each side that the other person has something worth saying, and we gradually converge on a, a sort of common understanding. That's dialogue, and we desperately need that in politics. Um, uh, why, for a moment, should we also talk about something else? Because our politics has diverged into trench warfare between ideologies, which achieve victory by shouting over. And if we wanted an example of shouting over the other, we've just had a splendid performance across the Atlantic. Well, I, yes, and I think it's a good example, might be our best counterexample yet for all the things that you're talking about, if anyone actually listened to an hour and a half of that presidential uh, debate. But just to push back, I suspect there'll be quite a lot of people watching this who might be shocked with your, the ease with which you, uh, the disdain you have for Greta and the, um, that whole agenda. If the climate is an example where a very long-term need of the community, in fact, the whole of the global society, um, is not being addressed uh, because of the short-term dynamic of politics and indeed the generational horizon, relatively short horizon of the generation in power, um, don't you need the likes of Greta and millions of other young people on the streets who may not be super informed but understand that basic point? I guess just to say, how does this fit? How does the doing the right thing on the environment fit into your analysis? Because it's, it's not it's not in the book. I was a bit surprised. Because what we don't need is more people in the street expressing concern about climate change. If expressing concern about climate change was something that would deal with the climate problem, then it would have been dealt with a long time ago. The solutions to the climate issues are basically technological. What we need is proper research. And what we need is the development of technologies that will enable not just Western Europe and North America, but Africa and Asia to achieve economic development without massively using and um, making extensive use of carbon related technologies. That's what we need to be working on. What we need is people working together uh, to find serious solutions to serious problems rather than the, the rush of virtue signaling, which we currently see in relation to issue after issue. Of course, there's a problem with racism, particularly uh, in the US. But what we needed to do is identify these problems and, not, uh, and find solutions to them, not more people shouting on the streets one way or the other. And where, has, where, has, where has passion gone with climate change? The strongest green movement in Europe is Germany. And what has the German green movement achieved? The closure of nuclear, which led to a huge expansion in the burning of brown coal. So Germany's carbon emissions have gone up as a result of having a very powerful green movement. That is passion, not harnessed to informed purpose. 
I think that, well, there was probably we shouldn't get completely sidetracked by the environmental. I think it's really interesting because it's quite, it's, a, it's, a, it's an example that many people will have in their minds when they read the book and think about how we could diff, have a different approach. Um, I think even on that, it's hugely controversial within the environmental movement and many different views on that and about the role of nuclear. So I think Germany ended up in one place, I think mainly in reaction to the the Japanese accident and Merkel's announcement on that as much as from a green um, influence. But just to get to the, you know, back to the, the book, I, I, well, this conversation is sort of highlighting something that I did wonder about, is that you, you highlight what we need, it's sort of mediating institutions, so, you know, lead, the right kind of political leadership, as you would describe it, as a way of moving forward, people being more connected with their communities rather than sort of going off on more um, on tangents or things that don't reflect their interests. Um, but most people reading will think those, in, those mediating leaders are gone and social media is making it even harder for that to happen. So did you come away hopeful uh, after writing this book? Because one could read it as saying, yeah, we, we really are in a bad way and I can't see a way out. We're not saying we can't see a way out, but we've been going in many ways in the wrong direction for um, uh, in recent decades. In the business area, we went badly in the wrong direction uh, with the 50 years since Friedman wrote that notorious article, the social responsibility of business is to maximize its profits. The social responsibility of business is actually to produce goods and services that people want to provide satisfying employment, uh, to meet the needs of the communities in which business operates. That's the social responsibility of business. And I'd contrast that on the one hand to the social responsibility of businesses to maximize its profits. But on the other, the social responsibility of business is not to do good. Social responsibility of business is to do good business. And that's true of all the other communities we're talking about. Now, as far as business is concerned, I think that the pendulum is at least swinging back in the right direction. It's got a long way to go before it gets to the, the central position it was in 50 years ago. Uh, but we are now getting a fairly satisfactory re reaction to that. And that's what business needs uh, and business needs to stop describing itself in ways that actually are actually both repulsive and do not correspond to the reality of what successful business is actually like. I thought that was wonderfully, just to say, I thought that was wonderfully bracing in the book that you point out that any company that's really tried to implement that very individualistic business, business model has tended to do extremely badly. Um, yeah, it's almost funny the extent to which that is true. The classic, of course, was Bear Stearns, which was the, the, the business uh, that had a sign above its trading floor saying, we make nothing but money. And of course, what happened was in the long run, they turned out not to make that either. Uh, I've been writing a little piece for myself on called The Fall of the Icons, which runs through how the businesses which we would have regarded as paragons of good business 50 years ago, ICI, Marks and Spencer in this country, um, General Electric, Sears Roebuck in the United States, are one after the other 
these businesses have been damaged by essentially this individualistic approach to what businesses are like. And there are just so many cases. Uh, the most extreme case, which I was j just making notes on this morning, is actually Deutsche Bank, which has moved from being uh, the business that made the, the bank that was the powerhouse of financing German industry into a, essentially a failed US hedge fund. And for that to happen in 25 years is a quite extraordinary and entirely negative achievement. Right, to go back to a question, are we hopeful? Um, Greed is Dead is a prediction. Uh, it's a very hopeful book. Um, it says we're at peak greed. And why are we at peak greed? Because gradually ideas filter through. Um, ideas matter. And the ideas on which peak, on which greed was founded, these individualistic ideas, turn out to be just wrong. They're, they are against the grain of the new evidence from evolutionary biology. They're against the grain of the evidence from business performance. They're just not how we're designed to work well together. And those ideas will gradually filter through. Um, you see it in a tidal wave of, of, of new books, basically all along a communitarian theme um, by some very influential people across the board. And so I think intellectually, we are already comfortably past peak greed. Those ideas will take a decade to filter through, but they will. And of course, COVID is an accelerator because COVID is a splendid example of the need to come together. Just look around Europe, the most successful country, as far as I can see, is Denmark. Uh, it's had a, about the lowest economic hit and about the lowest mortality hit. So it's not even set it up as a trade-off, do we save the economy or do we save people? It's saved both. Why has it done that? Because repeatedly over the decades, Denmark has demonstrated an ability to work together for a common purpose. That's why on all the indicators, the subjective indicators of well-being and happiness, the objective indicators of lifestyle, it comes out as top in the world. And so along comes this new crisis of COVID and Denmark, unlike a number of other countries, has a very modest leader, a very ordinary person, very humble person, single mother. When she says yes, when she says we, people listen because yes, she's one, she's, she's an ordinary dame. And what she said was she didn't need a, a doctorate in virology to know what to do with COVID. What do people need? They need the information to know, have I got COVID? which means do test and track, tr test and trace. Um, so she did that. And then the other thing, they need to take personal responsibility um, not to spread the disease to others. And so she, she hasn't even needed to close the schools in Denmark. 
they've stayed open because everybody's understood the need to take personal responsibility for not spreading the disease. That is a successful society which has built this capacity to do common purpose again and again and again and with a good leader um, who's actually uh, a communicator because they're listened to, not just a commander-in-chief trying to pull levers, Denmark's been able to very rapidly reset to a new common purpose. It's instructive, I think, that the societies that have dealt most effectively with the COVID crisis have been either the uh, basically states of Northern Europe, Scandinavia and Germany, etc., or uh, some of the authoritarian states, states of Southeast Asia. The ones that have come out really badly have been the most aggressively individualistic societies, Brazil, the United States, etc. And we're going to run out of time, and I want to try and keep things on, a, on an optimistic note. Um, but taking going from that, uh, I think a lot of people would wonder for those countries that have gone down the individualist route, that have trashed many of these institutions and find it with social media particularly harder and harder to have single conversations around important matters and constructive dialogue. In some cases in the US it's probably impossible at this point and the corporate control of many of the levers of power is also very ingrained, the rent seeking and all the things that you talk about. Um, isn't are you not concerned that we now have taken away the levers in those societies to get back to a better equilibrium that we might in fact be trapped on a bad in a bad equilibrium where, without any of the tools to able to go back i think that's i think there's, there's a real worry there and one of the things we trace in the book is the way the uh, the organization of political parties the historic organization essentially collapsed after communism collapsed, because in a sense, you had a political dialogue that was historically polarized around socialism. Uh, and when that ceased, except in moderate, moderate forms, to be a, a viable economic and social doctrine after 1990, it also left parties of the right rather adrift, because they'd been assemblies of groups traditionalists, uh, business people, individualistic business people, um, people who valued nationalism and patriotism and so on. All, all groups of people with very little in common, except that they were threatened by the, the dominant parties of the left. So that we've seen essentially a collapse of that traditional political order. What we need is actually a rebuilding of political parties and political institutions around about some of the ideas we've talked about in this book. I mean, let me let me end with um, the responses to COVID in Britain and America. Um, in Britain, we're a very very top-down uh, organised society. Uh, everything in the private sector and the public sector happens in London. Um, Whitehall is the most highly centralized government system in, in the world, basically. Um, so 
it's used to just telling people what to do, but they opened some little portal for volunteering. They didn't know what to do with the volunteers. They thought they might end up with a quarter of a million. On the very first day, they got more than half a million people volunteering. Of course, they were embarrassed because they didn't know what to do with them. But people, ordinary British people, wanted to help. And if we go across the Atlantic, a much serious, more, more serious infection, not of COVID, but of individualism, what was the reaction to COVID? Cues outside gun shops. Not quite the Danish response of protect your neighbor, more shoot your neighbor. But that individualism didn't work. And so you're quite right. Um, societies can veer off in either the hopeful direction of pulling back and saying, we are after all, a community, or uh, they can degenerate into shoot your neighbor. And historically, in the book, we point to both. Um, I don't know if there's anything that you feel we haven't, a major bit of the book that you feel that we haven't, uh, that we haven't touched on, uh, that you'd like to leave people with this event. We haven't answered, Stephanie, the question which you posed right at the beginning, which is the question of what are economists doing writing about political philosophy? <laughs> and the answer to that, uh, my answer to that certainly is, I don't think we've anything new to say about political philosophy. But what has happened is that over the last half century, economics became associated with a particular political philosophy that was at odds with how successful business and economies actually operated. And we're trying to redress that. I think that's a theme that's very uh, that will resonate with anyone in the RSA and the, and the broader audience. And I think it reflects the kind of uh, Renaissance men that you both are, which is very much reflected uh, in this book. And I suspect we'd all be better off if we had a, a broader lens that involves place as well as uh, the technical uh, expertise that you have. So thank you both very much, uh, Sir Paul Collier and John Kay. Uh, I'm sure the book is available in all good bookshops. In fact, I know it is. Um, and uh, appreciate you joining to hear the debate. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.